Well, take your Bible, if you would, turn to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8 this morning, which is where our study takes us in continuing to work through the book of Joshua. Uh, And I trust, and even as you read and hear those words in Matthew, and as we walk through a text of Scripture this morning, that reminds us of the significance of the the covenants that we have made, uh, and the fact that we would land on a covenant renewal passage when we think about making covenants together, joining in new members to our body, re- rethinking and, and meditating on where, how, how I fulfill various covenants before the Lord and commitments. These are significant to us. There is such an important aspect in the life of the children of Israel as, as, as these two texts that have been previously walked through, when you think about the totality of the story of the fall of I, as Andy has just walked you through that text, and, and we, we come to the end uh, of that section, and, and I just want to remind you, all of these individuals that had now crossed over the Jordan. We get sometimes far removed from this whole process because we're highlighting a particular section. But remember, if you would, many of these children who had who had been born in the wilderness, whose parents had now passed away, who now they have come over the Jordan. They have experienced the Jericho experience. They have, received, they have experienced a positive perspective of what is possible and the truth of the promises that God would never leave them or forsake them in Joshua chapter 1. And they've also now experienced what it would be like if you deviate from that, according to Joshua 1.8. If you, if you don't follow it and you move and you, and you don't stay the course, the fall of the, the, the city of Ai was not easily fallen because there was sin. And these individuals had now crossed the Jordan as the children of those who once stood on the brink of that promise now had to be reminded, and it's a staple mark in the Old Testament study of Joshua, various components of covenant renewal. And you may ask yourself as you study, why would he highlight that? Didn't all Israel get that? Well, think about the story. Here's the children of these people only having heard of Mount Sinai, only having heard of the parting of the Red Sea, the plagues in Egypt, And now God was forging within themselves through more miraculous works that they could trust in him. And he wanted a response. And that response is commitment and covenant. And he constantly wanted to remind them of who they were, which is why he reminded them at Gilgal of circumcision and the Passover. And now they would go a little bit further and the entirety of the the fall of I and they're reminded of what happens if you deviate. Oh, so remarkable. I remember uh, when I was in Israel, we just have the... I just have had the fortunate opportunity to be able to be there a number of times. And you notice in Joshua chapter 8, the ending of this and the starting of this passage. And he says, and he hanged the king of Ai on the tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree. And they threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city. And they raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. 
standing in the sight of in the in the in the backdrop of I listening to this story, seeing the hills where the children of Israel, their warriors, would have hid, knowing that, having my daughter roaming around and suddenly find in the battle of I a slingstone. Now, their slingstones came in different sizes and different shapes, but you could realize uh, uh, David probably maybe carried a little smaller one in the pouch when he picked up, if he picked up five. But when you went to battle with the slingstone and you think about the story of I and them decimating the entirety of the city, you had different warriors who would carry slings and they would be heaping these stones about the size of just under a baseball. And you could imagine getting hit with something like this. And yet, Amongst all the sling stones that would have been slung on that day, they were commanded to heap great stones and cover this city with piles of stones. And can I tell you this? This is a remarkable thing. As you stand there in that site, the only thing that you can see is piles of rocks everywhere. Stones upon stones, and this was a deliberate effort. You had to go collect these. They weren't going to just, you had to go down by someplace and bring them back up. Why would God do all of and command all these things? It's so that every time, think about it, thousands of years later, I, I'm standing and others stand at the site of I and go, something happened here. This wasn't accidental. God didn't just back up the rock truck from heaven and dump it on this site. All of a sudden, something is to be reminded. And he pulls us now into a context, having understood what joyous uh, victory looked like in Jericho and the, the, the terribleness of defeat and destruction, only because you wouldn't follow the Lord. And now it only makes sense that after the first two battles, which would be the central campaign in the conquest of the land of promise, that Joshua would say he would hit the pause button and go, we've done this, it's been great, we've seen this, it's been really bad. And to call all the people together and say, you see what I saw, right? You see what happens when we do this, and you see what happens when we do this. That same kind of reflective responsibility is crucial for the believer today, even as we think about walking through this particular text. Because the main idea as we, un as we unfold these five verses is that believers must be deliberate about remembering and responding in faithfulness to God's word. We, by the way, if you haven't noticed this about yourself, you should already. You and I have this frail human creatureliness depend, uh, re, uh, reality that we live with. We constantly forget. We constantly will say, oh, I should have been thinking. I should have remembered that. We are no different than the people of Israel, which was a constant reminder that there has to be a deliberate reflection and meditation on the word which is consistent with Joshua 1.8 that I will not let this word depart out of my mouth but I will meditate on this day and night. It has to be such a consistent marker 
or characteristic for the life of the believer that you and I, as we live our Christian life, it can't be said of us like, oh, well, I just didn't know certain very important facets to the Christian life. We need to be a consistent student of the Word of God. Let's, I'm going to take these verses in, in Joshua chapter 8 and the, the last five verses here in various sections this morning because I think it will help us as we walk through and gain an understanding of why this covenant renewal was a significant reality. And the first of them is this, a symbol. Let's look at verse number 30, Joshua chapter 8, verse number 30. It says, At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord. The God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered it, they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrifices of peace offerings. Now you may think, okay, of all these things and all the people in the land, they now know and they are fairly quite exposed to the reality that they are not just there visiting the promised land. They are there to take over the promised land. Now, if you were an inhabitant of the land, that probably didn't give you a whole lot of comfort. It wasn't just like, oh, come visit, yes, come to the market. No, you are going to take what we have. Well, the reality was, is as Moses instructed in so many occasions, that, were, that there were altars that were built. And it's so fascinating when you think about the context of worship. Because you see this facet going on from the very early stages of the Bible. Isn't it, I, it, it, is, not, uh, it, it is not unthinkable to understand that this has been such a long-standing reality that when you go to commune with the living God, you build an altar. Because altars were always about worship. So one of the things that you want to remember about this passage is that this was a call to the people of God to worship him. To continue the covenant that he had made. To fulfill the promises and the oaths in which that, that, that they had set before them. You remember that on Mount Sinai? This thunderous reality and thunder and lightning and smoke from the Mount Sinai. And, and the people said to Moses... We, we shouldn't talk to him. You talk to him for us. And God says, you're right to fear me because I am holy. Don't even touch this mountain. And for their children, only hearing this reality that, that God meant business, uh, this was instructed per, uh, as we look at Exodus chapter 20. It's very interesting that he unfolds the Ten Commandments that was given by Moses, and he says this statement is recorded in the book of the first five books and in, in the second book of Exodus. He says, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. See, the symbolic reality of the altar was the promise of Joshua 1. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when I bring you into the land, I'm not there to make your name great. I'm there to make my name great. And this altar stands as a visual uh, reminder to you that this is my promise to you. 
And that promise is contingent upon whether you will obey me. And, and they had understood that by now. But remember, symbolically, when we think about altars, this is the, the necessity to, to realize that the idea of altars are re responding in worship. What is that worship supposed to be like? It means that we're supposed to recall to our minds, what are the, the areas in which God calls me to obey him? What are the purpose and the goals and the agenda of my life? There are many moments where in our lives, we need to hit pause for a moment with all the things that we have going on. I bet you probably haven't heard someone say when you asked them, how is your week, that you didn't get this response. I just sat at home on the couch and tried to figure out what in the world am I going to do with myself? You notice everybody's propensity and disposition is, oh man, it was a busy week. Oh man, I've got this going on. Oh man, I've got kids' activities here. Everybody's lives are so encompassed and busy with all kinds of things. And the altar and the worship of God calls us to respond and remind ourselves, do are we making the most important things significant to us? This should be a common facet in the life of the believer, and it was common in the conquest because he knew the propensity of the people's hearts. It was to remind them and everyone else who would come upon this altar, who does this land belong to? Oh, this altar was set up by those wandering wilderness people who are now here to stay, and this is an altar to the God who we have heard about who did wonders in Egypt. This is a God you don't mess with. It was a constant visual reminder. And notice these textual markers. I don't think they're there accidentally. He says, He took them to Mount Ebal, and he made the altar just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law. Catch this flavor as you go through this text because the centrality of the word is permeated through these five verses. And it is staple marked by this, these phrases. Whatever Moses told us to do, because God told Moses to write it down, we're going to do exactly what he tells us to do. And it's reiterated by the author to say and remind us that they did it exactly in accordance with God's word. That is a critical component for us. He draws them uh, to respond now. Remember, they had been camped at Gilgal just on the other side of the Jordan River. They had gone now to the central campaign. Jericho's defeated. I is defeated. Now they travel just a bit north to Mount Ebal where Moses had told them, this is the mountain where you will set up an altar. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 11. In verse 29 and 30, where Moses said, And when the Lord your God brings you into this land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And they, are they not beyond the Jordan west of the road toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah opposite Gilgal beside the oak of Moreh? They are responding in every way, shape, and form that when God says something through one of his servants, 
they would do it. And the sign of a good leader, by the way, if they're still wondering how Joshua is going to lead for them, this also ought to be a staple mark for them to hear. We're going to do it exactly the way the servant Moses told us. Did everyone in the people of Israel have a pretty good, respectful understanding of the prophet Moses? I think they did. And when Joshua would connect himself to that great leader of the past and his successes that were only there based upon Moses' willingness to follow God's command. In fact, I would argue that the reminder of doing what Moses called them to do alongside of Moses' absence in the promised land was a powerful statement to a covenant reminder that even the greatest of leaders that you respect and love have a responsibility to be truth-centered. And when any one of us, from the leadership on down, deviates from that path, there is significant consequences to the life of the people. This means that as a congregation, you don't just say, Oh, man, thank goodness I'm not an elder and I don't have to make decisions. You pray for God's wisdom, for your leadership, and for your elders, that they would be so tied and influenced by the work of the Spirit of God and enlightened by the truth of God. Because without that understanding, any one of us, any one of us as elders, any one of us as congregation members can deviate from that to our demise. We see where our culture is today, and that is because so often Christian people have forgotten what it is, it is supposed to be like to be Christian. They have allowed themselves to be tainted by worldly perspectives and worldly agendas and mindsets that is now permeated in the culture. And then they want to say, I can be this and a Christian. These are oxymoronic statements. When, when a Christian is called to be holy, you cannot say that I am whatever you want, that I am some, such and such to say I am a homosexual Christian. That is an oxymoronic statement that has deviated from the reality of remembering the covenant that has been laid down by a holy God who calls us to remember. Be the Christian God wants you to be. Don't be someone who is constantly thinking, how close to the world can I get and still be called a Christian? Let it be known of you that you are moving further away from the world than closer to it. That is going to take some significant spiritual strength. That means that in a culture where we are to worship and make God the central mechanism of our life and worship and goal, that means that sometimes we and likely are going to be very saying things that are very unfavorable to people. Christian, can, is your faith strong enough to weather that kind of criticism in the midst of a culture that has deviated from the kind of Christian principles that God longs for them to experience? 
Joshua wanted this to happen for the people as they entered the land. He knew what they were getting themselves into. This wasn't a land that was easy. Yes, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, but it was a land that had been filled with paganism. And he was calling them to tear down their idols and tear down their altars and erect right altars to the living God. This is so significant that I think often the psalmist picks up on these realities in life, uh, in the life of the people of God, and says things like Psalm 62, 5 to 7, where he says to the people, he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge. He is God. The only reality of strength and commitment that you and I are called to do in this world is to rest in this kind of refuge. We need to connect ourselves with people who are finding refuge in the God of the Bible and in his son Jesus Christ and in the work of the Spirit of God who has sealed the believer until what? The day of redemption. Christians, we're going there. And if we don't remind ourselves quite often, we can easily slip and deviate from a worship of God to being tainted and having our eyes set on on things of the world. And then we begin to wonder, well, if it's just a little bit, that's not so bad. Moms and dads, if you're not teaching these truths to your children on a regular basis to remind them that the God of heaven has stipulations on their Christian living. It's not just bring them to church in Sunday school and then they'll hopefully catch it. Oh, for years in my own heart, I have lamented in so many ways where young people who have been brought up into the church all of a sudden end up turning from the Lord And saying, I don't believe him anymore. I don't believe that anymore. And they turn to the world as if that has something better to offer, only to find heartache and suffering. Don't let that be you. The altar was significant as a symbol to remember that you and I must find refuge in God. And I would ask you this question this morning for your own reflective purposes. Is the aim of your life to bring glory to God as a living sacrifice? Can you stand and worship and sing and be involved in ministry in such a way where you're saying what 1 Corinthians 6.19 proclaims? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, Christian. I am not my own. I don't get to be the captain of my own ship. I have to, when I come to repentance and faith, what I am doing is stepping away from the lordship of my life and relinquishing that and saying, God, you are Lord. I now bear allegiance to you and to you alone. And if you just say that, And then you go out and proclaim that. And you go tell people that. And then your life doesn't match that. 
That is a sad description of a Christian. And I would call us this morning to continue to renew that passion, that commitment, that covenant that you made when you confessed your sins before God Almighty and you rested in the work of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for you and you repented of your sins and you turned to Jesus Christ. So often Christians do at times backslide. Yes, there are such things in the Bible as carnal Christians. Now, they, a carnal person who is truly Christian will not remain that way. But I will tell you this, that in a group of people, of Christians of this size, we have to remember and be, be thinking, how am I praying for the strength of my brothers and sisters who are called to fight against the evil one? The powers of this dark world. Because I'm telling you, Christian, I'm telling you, young people, Satan is after derailing Christians from the faith so that he can, so that he can create a, 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 a response in your life that will not bring glory to God. It's not so much about you. He hates God. That is his agenda. You get, you are used by Satan when you give into temptation to bring glory to another of which it doesn't belong. There is one and one God alone. And Joshua reminds the people as they enter into these battles time and time again and hits pauses for moments to set up the altar of uncut stone. You know, a lot of commentators and a lot of theologians debate, what is this reality of uncut stones? And I'm not going to solve that for you this morning. Some may say, well, uh, part of it is is because uh, they were called not to create idol worship, and if there were stones that were, uh, that were cut and shaped, it, it's, it's a possibility that there could be some kind of idolatrous figure, and they wanted to stay as far away from that as possible. Many would say that's the reason why for the uncut stones. It could be the case. Moses said, he said, when you put up the altar, he said, make it of uncut stone that none of them would be defiled. And I think the point of it here for me is that you, you let God tell you what to do and you don't defile it by doing anything on your own to do anything else to it. When he says this, you do it. And that's the whole point, for me, of the uncut stones. Obey God to, the gross, to, to, the, to, the, to every single degree. And in all reality, I mean, sometimes we think about that and we think, oh, come on, Lord, it's a rock. Does it really matter if somebody chiseled a piece of it away? No, because it's not about the rock. It's about the obedience to the call that when he says, do this, that you do it. That's what he's about. Joshua sets this altar of uncut stone by the words of Moses and he challenges those people to remember to live as a holy sacrifice to make God known in the land. You know what? The, the reality for Christians today, our purpose and goal in life as a Christian has really not changed. Although we are not Jews and we are not called to the conquest of Canaan, 
But we are called as holy people to live as temples of the living God who now the Spirit resides in us and we are called to make his name known. And I just want to challenge you this morning. How well are you doing that, Christian, about making his name known? Or are you just about what you want to be about? I want this, and I want this enjoyment. I want that enjoyment. I want this experience. I want that experience. I want even something down to, I want these clothes, or those shoes, or this guy, or this gal, or that marriage, or you name it. Is your purpose and goal in life to bring glory to the living God and make your life a living sacrifice? Let's talk for a moment about this reality of sacrifices that Joshua brings about in Joshua, at the end of Joshua 31. He makes the altar according to the law of Moses right at the end of verse 31. And he says, the altar of uncut stone, which has not been wielded by an iron tool. And they offered on it two kinds of offerings, burnt offerings to the Lord and, sacrifice, and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, let's just remind ourselves in the reality that these offerings were listed in this occasion for a reason. I, I'm going to try to help us understand this morning why just the actual sacrifices were significant to understanding this passage as well. Now that they have solidified, this altar is to worship the living God. This covenant is a reminder. Many of you children were not at Mount Sinai. We are going to follow Moses' commands to the T, and we're going to first offer burnt offerings and then fellowship offerings or peace offerings. Now, burnt offerings, if you go back, and you know, we don't have the time, nor do you want to hear me read through the entirety of the book of Leviticus, because I know that's the first place all, you, all of you want to go in your Bible reading, is that remind yourself, the whole entirety of the book of Leviticus was a holiness code. That's what the law was. It was a way that they could understand what be holy as God is holy was supposed to look like. Here are the kind of offerings. Here's how you make the offerings. Here's when you make the offering. Here's what it's supposed to picture. And notice these phrases. If you were to go to Leviticus 1, 2, 3, and 4, you'll hear this remarkable phrase. And I'll let you go there later. And when the altar was burnt before the Lord, it rose to heavens as a pleasing aroma before God. That is a symbol of worship. That he looks at your life and mine and he sees the sacrifice of our life and in a sense, he goes, oh, that smells so good. That is so pleasing in my sight. These offerings of burnt offerings, if you go to Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 4, you will notice this statement that he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. See, the burnt offerings, by the way, remind yourself, were all about things that were needing confession and repentance because sin was involved. Now, just by the way, as we're talking about the stories of the conquest, and we get done with the story of I, where Achan goes and he steals something that he shouldn't have taken and he hides it in his tent and he covers it up and he doesn't think anybody should know. And the whole story's revolved around no one else did know, but one person sure knew. 
And this whole story unfolds for this reality. He, Joshua is not mistaken for one moment that Achan was the, on, on, was the only bad apple amongst the group. Now, they may not have taken various things, but you know what? Sin comes into di- different components at times, and the propensity for the people of God to fall into sin And for Joshua to recognize that burnt offerings would be sacrificed to make atonement for the nation because just by nature of who they were as sinners at birth, it was a reminder to them, you can't come before a holy God with all of your sin. And the burnt offering was made to remind the believers in the conquest, there's still a problem with what's going on in my heart. Atonement is the word that we get in the New Testament that that is connected with this theological word, propitiation. Okay, Which is, in many translations in the New Testament, just replaces it with the idea of atonement. It's an idea of covering. that That a blood sacrifice would cover. And in these sacrifices of the burnt offering, the priest would then sacrifice it and know the, 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 the one who had come had put his weight all on that animal. They would slit the throat. That would, in a sense, be a transfer of the guilt and the sin. And then they would sacrifice the whole burnt offering before the Lord. They would, they would allow the entire animal to be burnt as a signifier that God had taken away all the guilt and the sin. And he had made atonement now. He covered it for you. See, atonement is not just a New Testament reality. It is a built on Old Testament sacrificial system where we realize as people our sinfulness and, and, and understand that we need the living God in his word and to follow his ways and he will make atonement for us when we bring and we and we come before him humbly and with the right heart and offer these things before him he is willing to forgive us see this is a reminder to them i mean they're not very far into the promised land conquest by the way battle number 2 and somebody's already taken stuff We don't get very far often in our Christian life where we all of a sudden want to be like the world and get what we want. But you know what's the blessing of this? Oh, believer, that if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, the work of the Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And when you call out to him and you confess your sins, like John says in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins... You know what he's going to do? He's going to forgive you. And if you're here this morning and you realize and you've been thinking, man, I've been just walking so closely to the ways of the world and you're starting to think, you know what? I'm looking more like the world than I am looking like a Christian. That's not the end of it for you. Call out and confess your sin to him. He will accept your genuine confession and repentance and he will restore you. You can find fellowship with him, which is the significance of the second offering. 
He gives burnt offerings, things that remind us of sin, that keep us from the holy presence of God. And then he reminds us with the peace offering or fellowship offerings. And these offerings were brought, whether it was a, a, a bird or whether it was a, 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 an animal from the herd, and they would only take certain portions. And when they, the priest took those portions, certain portions would be burnt, and the other portion was given back to the worshiper, and they were to eat it on the day that they worshiped or on the day that they sacrificed that peace offering before God, according to Leviticus. What's that supposed to signify? He will cover your sin, and he welcomes you back in communion with God. And the meal was all about, you can have fellowship with me, but you've got to come on my terms, not yours. And the burnt offering and the peace offerings were a reminder to this group who had come from the wilderness wandering children. And they're now being reminded, you're, you're still going to need the forgiveness of the God of heaven. You are still called to maintain this right fellowship relationship with him. Isn't this remarkable? When we think about this, God desires fellowship with you. I mean, if you were God, would you want a fellowship with you? I mean, he understands who you are. He understands who I am. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God and his fellowship with me that is now made possible through the work of Jesus. But the fact is that he sent the Son to be the Savior of the world so that 1 John says that we might know God and have fellowship with him. And, he's, and John puts it in those words, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And I love how he puts this, so that your joy might be complete. Christian, this is given to us as a reminder that we have, we, our lives are supposed to be living holy sacrifices to God and that we would be in awe of this God when we begin to think, you want to know me? Oh, I, I, I don't feel worthy. You're not. None of us are. And that's what sets us in awe. Is because we don't deserve to be there. We don't deserve to have the continual forgiveness. I bet, probably on average, most of us are sinning every single day, every single day during our week. And yet he forgives every time you go back and he restores you. And doesn't it blow your mind that he never goes after like the hundred thousandth time of you coming? He goes... I don't know about this. I'm getting a little tired. He does not grow tired in showing mercy and grace to his people. That's what sets him apart from us. We may feel exhausted or have come to a limit of grace and mercy, but our God never does which means you can go to him time and time again. And even as you sit here, you can make your life right with him. 
these offerings were a signifier that God desires fellowship, but you must come on his terms. You must do it for his reasons and in his way. You cannot worship a holy God in the way of your choosing. Hophni and Phinehas tried that as priests and offered profane fire before the Lord in the Old Testament, and they were struck down. Ananias and Sapphira tried to do a very similar thing and lie to the work of the Holy Spirit, and they were struck down. Now, don't hear me say you're going to get struck down. But do let yourself hear me say this. There are significant consequences that only God recognizes that are just so that you would come back as he disciplines you into coming back to his fold. He desires you to be there. Don't let your feelings of unworthiness keep you from coming before the throne of grace. Don't let unconfessed sin or pursuit of the ways of the world keep you from coming to the throne of grace. Christian, he wants us there. We need to be there on a regular basis, coming before him. And that's what Joshua would constantly remind his people that he now led, that he led the people of God saying, this is so critical. And notice, we go from the symbol to the sacrifices, and now this portion of of this, of this statement in verse 33. And all Israel's sojourner as well as native born with their elders, officers, and their judges, first mention of some of the judges preceding the book of Judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at first, to bless the people of Israel, and afterwards he read all the words of the law, the blessing, the cursing, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Now, I don't know what people's response were as they set them up, and they had certain tribes that were mandated to be on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. You can see that in the Old Testament. And now Joshua stood up and said, okay, he had written a copy. You notice in the text that, that Joshua Uh, had taken those stones and he had written a copy of the law. This was often a reminder. It was a function of even the kingship that every king would write his own copy of the law. I don't get the picture in the text that he plastered the stones that were of the altar. That they plastered other stones that then Joshua wrote a copy of the law. And then I can only imagine what everybody's response is. They got everybody set up. Man, woman, child, native, sojourner, uh, all ages of all time. And Joshua said, all right, I've got an announcement. I'm reading the entirety of the law. I wonder if they're like, oh man, like we got dinner on. And Joshua was making a point that the following of God's word was central to the conquest of the, of, of, the, of the land. Don't deviate it. The author is reminding you of Joshua 1.8. They did everything according to it. Why? Because it matters. It's so critical to make the word of God the central component of the life of the worshipers of God. Nothing has changed from Old Testament to New, by the way. This ought to be a central component of your life. 
Now, what did he read? He read the entirety of the law, and I think he also made specific reference to the blessings and the cursings. And you know the, the reality that Moses said, those who are on one mountain are going to call out the blessings, and the ones on the other mountain are going to call out the cursings. And why would they do that? Because it was a collective nationalistic reminder that they need God. And that we and our safety and our children's safety and our, our ability to, to experience the promise of the land are contingent upon us following him. And the word became the central mechanism by which they understood. Now, I think it's so uh, critical that the blessings and the cursings were made known on this reading. Because no one who left that day was mistaken in some degree who would go, well, what, happened if, what will happen if we don't? No, they won't say that. They'll say, this is what's going to happen if we do. Here's what's going to happen if we don't. And that's why I say to you, believers, brothers and sisters, there are significant consequences to our lives and to the lives of our families and to the lives of our marriages and to the lives of our congregation if we don't anchor ourselves consistently to the exposition of the truth of God's word and make it central to the body of Christ at Cape Bible Chapel. If you're new here, I hope one of the things that you get so quickly on that you go, they use the Bible. And we're just not going to stop. And that means no matter what it says, we're going to say it. We're going to do it graciously and tactfully and filled with love. But we will not shrink back from saying what God says is right. We cannot. We must not. The moment we have even a mindset that that word does not matter on some level, we begin to drift. It must be the central component of our lives, Christian. Which means I think it begs the question as we walk in, in our own Christian walk, does the word of God play a central focus in your life, Christian? I've been around long enough as a pastor to recognize that many times as I've asked Christians the question, what's your devotions look like and are you even reading the Bible that regularly the response to that question is, eh, not very much. I should probably be doing that more. Is that your life? Are you too busy to even find 15 to 20 minutes to a half an hour in your life that you can't carve out? Christian, don't fool yourself that you are too busy to be in God's word. You are not. He gave us 24 hours in a day, not so that we could complain about the hours we wish we had, so that we could remind ourselves that he's given us enough and that it's calling us to prioritize our life with the time frame that he has set out. So Christian, do it. Like, I call you today. Be more diligent in your knowing of God's word. This week, even if you've been doing it well, I call you even to do it more and more, as the apostle would say, Paul, to, to many of his churches. Do it with greater fervency, recognizing that our Christian walks depend on the centrality of the words in our life, which means we have to ask this question, how receptive am I, am I to the truths of God's word? 
You know, you can read all kinds of things and set your, your trajectory this week on reading them, but I would just ask you the question, are you willing to obey what you will find there? Because if you're not, then it's just you and I going through a series of things that we think is good things that make us feel better and we check the box and we read the Bible, but then the moment God tells us to not be like the world, we don't even evaluate whether we are. We just go, hey, I did my devotions. I feel good. There is deception that goes on in the life of the believer that simply by reading of the truth, that somehow that there, there shouldn't be this crossover between, I need to do something about that. And can I challenge you? You and I got to do something about it. You should not and I should not feel comfortable to just sit back and say, oh, I'll try to get to that. Start somewhere. Challenge yourself to be receptive to the things of the truth, no matter what you may find there. And I think it does remind us of this particular verse in Deuteronomy, which I think is really significant. He says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandment and the statutes of the Lord which which I am commanding you today. Now just get this last part. For your good. Christian, he gave us the principles of God's word for our benefit, not for you to say, I'll think about it. Do you believe that he has your best interest in mind when he says, don't do this and then do this? It's not to keep you from joy. It's to keep you in safety and in truth and in worship. This is why Paul would say something. Like, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is why we sing, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thanksgiving in our heart. We want the word to dwell within us. That it's the very thing. I feel like even in going through small group, because if you haven't been in small group, you are missing out. We've been going through the Colossians, and I feel like that's just like the thing that keeps permeating out of my, out of my soul. It's constant reminders that the word must be a central dwelling place in my heart. Well, this certainly is consistent with all of what Joshua was doing. And he says in verse 44, as solemn reminder, and afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing, the cursing. And according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. And the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. It was not age specific. It was a signifier from generations that met that day for covenant renewal. That this God of heaven loves every single one of us and wants us to be in communion with him. And I can, I can only imagine that on that day when all that long day was over and all the readings were done, that on time in the future, moms and dads were having to answer the question, what was all that about? What was the whole burnt offering about? What was the peace offering about, mom? What was the burnt offering about, dad? Why are we reading this word? And they're calling them and teaching them along the way. The word is that 
critical for our lives. It is this point of 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And if you are honest, and if I am honest, when we go to the Word, we realize we need some reproving and admonishing and correcting so that we could be trained in righteousness and maintain that training for the glory of God. It's so important for our lives. I think it does remind us as we wrap up this morning of this Galatians 6 reality. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. It begs this question for you and I, Christian. What godly characteristics would you like to see growing in your life? And I bet, by the work of God's Spirit, you, you have a tendency to know, like, I should be growing more, and you could fill in that blank. What are you going to do about that? Will you be committed? Are, are you willing to plant, uh, to plant gospel-centered seeds of the Word that will grow for the sake of godliness? Yeah, I know, every one of us. Don't you, wouldn't you just love it if change and sanctification worked like a light switch? Like you could just flip it on and it's like, boom, you're illuminated. But it just doesn't work that way, does it? It means that if you and I are going to get to where God wants us to be, it's going it's to take one step at a time. We're going to have to have the gospel truths planted in our hearts and, when, and seeds of the gospel truths will, if we implant them in our soul, and we, and we foster and nurture them and follow God, guess what will happen? Fruit. Christian, I know amongst this body, I have seen the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God worked out in so many people's lives here. People sharing the gospel. People being willing to care to be, to be merciful and kind and give meals and all these kinds of things. And those who are setting aside time to comfort and care for other people. That is the work of the Spirit of God. That's something we continue to enjoy and embrace together. And I would challenge you this morning, wherever you happen to be, first start with repentance if you know you're not where God wants you to be. And then move to begin to start ever so graciously planting gospel seeds and God will help you. Don't fall prey to thinking your sanctification will be the switch. Plant seed after seed after seed after seed after seed. And in due season, God promises us that those will bear fruit. And you can experience a life that is pleasing before God, and that is exactly what he calls us to do. He calls us to remember a covenant renewal is very consistent with what we often do in communion every single month. Reminding ourselves, reminding ourselves, reminding ourselves, don't let us give up. Let us anchor our soul to the things of God. The more we do it, the more God is pleased. I pray that you would look at this passage and you look at your life and you remind yourself God wants and desires to commune with you. Your sin and my sin keeps us from a, a great communion with him. What will you do about that? Where will you start growing today that you need to grow in? 
so that God is glorified with your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We so desperately need your word. Lord, we as Christians would wander aimlessly about this world, seeking and desiring things that would promise satisfaction and yet never give it if we didn't have your word to guide us. Lord, we live in a culture that continues, that we continue to see the impact of depravity, choices, responses, statements. Lord, help us to be holy as you are holy. Spirit of God, we, we call and we ask you who lives within us, Lord, that you who has sealed us for the day of redemption, would strengthen us for the work of our spiritual life this week. Lord, that we would call to remember the promise that we made at salvation and shown allegiance to Jesus Christ, that we will live as a child of the kingdom that is to come. Lord, we need you so bad to help us. Jesus, thank you so much for making that possible through your death. In your name we pray, amen.